God is stirring the Gentile nations for the purpose of bringing out of them some very nasty, wicked people that will do some very ugly, painful things to God's people. The meaning of Daniel chapter 7 cannot be anything other than what it meant to the original recipients. So the meaning of Daniel chapter 7 can't be something that is necessarily intertwined with the revealing of the events that are foretold. Does that make sense? In other words... The vision is going to be this vision, and we'll get to it in just a minute, but this, it's going to be this vision about these four kingdoms. Now, the third kingdom, these are the same four kingdoms from Daniel chapter 2, but, but the third kingdom, for example, is going to be the kingdom of Greece, which arose in something like 334 B.C. We're still in the upper 500s B.C. There was no way that Daniel could know anything about Greece. Or the fourth kingdom is about the kingdom of Rome. There is no way that Daniel could understand Rome. Oh, Daniel understood that there was a final fourth kingdom coming. And he understood that that was going to be a kingdom different from the others. But if you had said to Daniel, oh yeah, that's that's the Roman Empire. He would have looked at you like he had two heads. What? Roman Empire? What are you talking about? So, the conclusion is, the meaning of the passage cannot be wrapped up in the identity of the beasts. If it is, then it made no sense to Daniel or to those who Daniel wrote it to. Does that make sense? Scripture can't have a meaning that has to evolve as political events play themselves out. That's a dangerous path to go down. When we start saying Scripture's meaning is revealed as political events play themselves out, that's a very slippery slope that we don't go down. Because we believe the meaning of the Bible is clear and the Bible means for us today the same thing it meant when it was written to its original recipients. So for Daniel and the ones who read Daniel's book first, the meaning has to be something that could be understood without knowing who the third beast is or who the fourth beast is or who the little horn is. Okay, Does that make sense? The point is to show us the end to declare to us confidently the end is a kingdom of God that is secure and firm and cannot but be brought about. And secondly, to give us details along the way that when they happen, affirm our faith. Now, in addition to this, we see that there's a couple of other things that happen with prophecy in the Scripture. First of all, prophecy shows us God's justice for the purpose of bringing about repentance. So oftentimes we see prophecy given... And the purpose is to show that there's judgment coming and God is a just God. And that is to urge or to bring about repentance. That was the point of the vision given to Nebuchadnezzar. The point was to bring about repentance. Think, for example, of the prophecies of Isaiah or Jeremiah, how Isaiah would have a prophecy to Moab. He would have a prophecy to Egypt. Jeremiah, the same sort of thing. They were intended to bring about repentance. Or Jonah. Think about Jonah. As he goes to Nineveh and proclaims, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's a prophecy. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That brought about repentance, which was the goal. So the other thing that prophecy is given for is to 
uh, show us God's wisdom and God's power for the purpose of encouraging our faith. And that's, that's really central. That's really key. When we see a God who knows the end from the beginning and tells us the end from the beginning and does it in such a way that our human wisdom can't put the pieces of the puzzle together on our own, but when we see it, it's beyond denying, then we have our faith in this wise, all-knowing, all-powerful living God. We have that faith strengthened and encouraged. Okay, so just one example of that, John 16 Jesus said, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. So he's telling them this is in the upper room. He's saying it's going to happen real soon. You're all going to abandon me. So Jesus is giving a prophecy there. You're, You're going to abandon me in the next few hours. But I have said these things to you, says Jesus, that you may have peace. In other words, I'm saying this to you now so that when it happens and you remember I said it to you, this will give you peace. You'll have peace. All right? So that's the first thing to see about prophecy. The second thing that we should see about prophecy is we should train our souls to think about prophecy like a picture book. Prophecy is the picture book of Scripture. Now, you know what a picture book is. You probably, if you've got kids, you well know what a picture book is. We've got six kids. I can't tell you how many thousands of times I've read picture books. So what is it about a picture book? A picture book is more pictures than words, right? And does a picture book tell a complicated story? No. A picture book tells a simple story with lots of illustrations. That's the point of a picture book. Now, the point of the illustrations is not to communicate this precise, in-depth type of meaning, but instead it's to evoke a certain response, a response in which you identify with the story because you see the pictures, and the pictures sort of draw you into the story. The story itself doesn't draw you in. The pictures draw you in. I have never finished reading Potty Bear and thought, wow, what an intriguing story that was. I just sort of got drawn into that story. Couldn't, it was a page-turner. Couldn't have put it down. But if I were to compare, let's say... Let's say if I wanted to compare Potty Bear to, I don't know, War and Peace. And I were to say, <laughs> Potty Bear is just really lacking on plot development. Um, it's just, the, the, the characters in Potty Bear are really shadow, shallow. You know, the only thing they got to do is potty. Really, the story doesn't go past that. Now, War and Peace, on the other hand, whoa, the character development there is really intense. That's ludicrous, right? I'm comparing apples and oranges. Because Potty Bear is not meant to tell me a deep, intriguing story. It's not meant to develop characters over decades of their life. Instead, it's meant to tell a story using illustrations. That is what prophecy does. Revelation is a picture book. You should learn to think of Revelation like a picture book. You should learn to think of Daniel 7 through 12 as a picture book. You should learn to think of Ezekiel as a picture book. And the thing about picture books is if you try to make them say what they're not saying, you get all out of whack with the picture book, don't you? Instead, if you just let the picture book say what it intends to say, it will say it vividly. And it will say it in such a way that communicates more to your 
heart than to your mind, right? Plenty of God's Word is written to communicate directly to our mind. We're in one of those passages in Ephesians chapter 1. But other parts of God's Word are meant more to communicate to the part of us that will identify with visual images. Stunning, striking. I almost made up a new word there, strining. Stunning visual images. That's what prophecy, particularly end times prophecy, is meant to connect with. Let me prove this to you. If you're open to Daniel chapter 7, just look at all of the words that draw us into seeing. Verse 2, I saw. Verse 4, I looked. Verse 5, and behold. Verse 6, I looked and behold. Verse 7, I saw and behold. Verse 8, behold. Verse 8 again, behold. And again, verse 9, I looked. Verse 11, I looked. I looked again. Verse 13, I saw. Behold, we can keep going. You, You get the point by now, don't you? This is a passage of Scripture that it is intently directed toward seeing. Seeing these images that are so fantastic. The beast, the leopard with four heads that we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. The the beast that doesn't even have a name that we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. To just seeing these images. And if you train your soul to think of, say for example, Revelation in that way, it will begin to open itself to you. Because you know what? Here's another thing to remember. This is real simple. If we keep the main thing, the plain thing, and remember that the plain thing is almost always the main thing. Isn't that easy to remember? The plain thing is almost always the main thing. And the main thing is always plain. That's true for all of Scripture, really. But if specifically with prophecy, if we keep the plain, the main thing, then we will avoid a lot of ditches on the side of the prophetic road, so to speak. Again, that's true for all of Scripture, but especially true for prophecy. We have gotten ourselves into much trouble by making the unplain thing the main thing. And this is a phenomenon that has really taken off in the last 30 years. This sort of fanciful idea that we can read these prophecies and we can know all these details that God never intended for us to know. When in reality, what God has to say to us about how events will unfold at the end of time is far, far simpler and plainer and easier to understand than most of us have been led to believe. You ever seen the the big charts, you know? You need a college degree to read those charts, don't you? I mean, they got arrows going up and arrows going down and arrows going to the left and they got blocks over here and menus down here and all sorts of all these. I mean, have we not taken what God is saying to us as when this comes to pass, you'll see this. We've taken that and made it the main thing. So if we endeavor to keep the main thing the plain thing, and the plain thing, the main thing. And we remember that prophecy is given to us that we know the end 
And as we encounter details that come to pass, we are affirmed in our faith. And at the same time, we remember that we're reading primarily books that are intended to appeal to a visual nature. Then we will avoid many traps along the way, specifically as we're looking, looking not just to prophecy, but specifically end times prophecy. All right, so I hope that helps. I've spent a lot of time over my ministry trying to, trying to come to terms with prophecy, especially end times prophecy. Because you know what happens is you'll read some guy and he's got it all worked out and you're like, oh, that sounds so good. I'm glad I finally understand this. And then you read somebody else and it's all different. <laughs> well, that sounds pretty good too. And then somebody else comes along and says, well, okay, well, here's, here's this. And you read, and well, well, that sounds like you've got that put together really well. And at the end, you're just frustrated and saying, can we know anything? When if we had started from the right place to say, here's what prophecy is here to do, and here's what it's not here to do, we would have easily avoided much of that. So we're going to try to use that as we work through Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, we're given the big picture, and we're also given details. Some of those details, we will know what they mean because it's happened. Others, we won't. Okay, so now, with all that being said, Let's now begin the prophecy in earnest. And we won't get all that far today. We're going to look at the earthly side of the vision and the the bulk, I believe, the bulk of what the chapter has to say to us comes to us in the heavenly aspect of the vision, which we will deal with next week. So this week, we just really want to set the stage. We'll talk about the vision itself. And the vision, the earthly part of the vision comes to us in verses, well, starts in verse 1. In verse 9, it switches to the heavenly aspect. And then verse 11, it sort of switches back again. And then in verse 15, Daniel asks the angel to interpret the vision for him, and the angel does interpret the vision. And then at the end, there's some more of the heavenly aspect. So we'll kind of work through, we'll work through this looking at the heavenly side first. All right, so beginning from verse 1. In the, first year of Be- in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and vision. So there we're told that we have now gone backwards in time because this vision was given to Daniel in the first year of Belshazzar, the king. Now that would have been about 10 years prior to chapter 5 or maybe 12, 13, 14 years prior to the present day. So we're now going backwards in time. In fact, the rest of the book of Daniel will not be in chronological order. So this vision is a vision in which we're going to see the vision is about Nebuchadnezzar, and the vision is also about the Medo-Persian kingdom coming to power. This vision, as well as chapter 8, are the key reasons why Daniel was so confident on that night that he was called into the great banquet hall, and there was writing on the wall, and Daniel said, here's what that means means you're going to die tonight because Daniel was seeing come to pass what he had been told earlier would come to pass. He didn't understand it earlier. Now, on that night, he did. He says, this is what that is. Okay, So we've gone backwards in time. Daniel is at the beginning of Belshazzar's reign. Daniel is now uh, an obscure person in the, in the uh, Babylonian Empire. He's lost the prestige that he once had. He's now serving under this very poor king, Belshazzar, and he's got another decade to go, and he's going to serve Belshazzar well, even though he was told at the beginning 
This kingdom is not going to last, okay? So now, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and vision and vision of his head as he lay in his bed. And he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, the great sea in Scripture is usually a metaphorical way of referring to the Gentile nations. The great sea is oftentimes, specifically the prophets, would refer to that as the Gentile nations. So the, the great sea, meaning the Gentile nations, is being stirred, and out of the Gentile nations, or out of the great sea, is going to come these four beasts. Now, who's doing the stirring? The stirring is being done by the four winds of heaven. That's a metaphorical way of saying God. So at the beginning of the vision, Daniel sees and he understands that what's happening is God is stirring the Gentile nations for the purpose of bringing out of them some very nasty, wicked people that will do some very ugly, painful things to God's people. So we see this sort of thing repeated over and over in Scripture, that God is the one who stirs up people to eventually do very bad things to His people because He has a greater purpose that He brings out of that. We see some examples of this. For example, Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. This is maybe about a century before Daniel's life. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I, this is God speaking, I am raising up the Chaldeans, another way to refer to the Babylonians. I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. God says, the Babylonians are being stirred up against you, and I'm the one doing the stirring. Or Judges chapter 14, this is the story of Samson. We remember the story of Samson. Samson wanted a wife, so he told his parents to go and get me a wife from among the Philistines. And his good Jewish parents said, son, is there not one of our own people that you can marry? Samson says, nope, I want one of those Philistine women. Go get her for me, and which they did. And we're told in verse 4, his father and mother did not know that, it was, that all of this was from the Lord. So God stirred Samson's heart to demand a Philistine wife because God was stirring up the Philistines against His people. For He was seeking, we're told, God was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Or we see Isaiah chapter 9, verse 11. This is just a random sampling because this too is all over your Scriptures. Isaiah 9, verse 11, But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against Him. So there's these Gentile nations. The picture is that the four winds of heaven is stirring them up to the effect that out of them is going to come these beasts, which are going to be some really nasty beasts that will get more and more nasty as they go. So verse 2, Daniel declared, I saw him in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. So the vision is parallel to Nebuchadnezzar's. Nebuchadnezzar's vision was the vision of the statue, and it was a statue made from four different materials. The golden head, the silver arms and chest, the bronze trunk and legs, and the iron and clay feet and legs. Now those four materials, we were told, represent four kingdoms. Daniel's vision parallels that vision with the same meaning, but one of the things that we're going to see throughout is that they're told from different perspectives. So Nebuchadnezzar's vision was of this statue, 
And this statue is something that people do what? Look up to and admire. And so it's presented as this admirable thing, this 90-foot-tall statue. Whereas these beasts are something that God looks down upon. And the behavior of the beast that we're going to see is going to be very violent and very wicked and very ungodly. So from the beginning, we see the difference of the two perspectives. Nebuchadnezzar is shown something that he respects. In fact, he wants to copy it. Daniel is shown something that God disdains, something that's very violent and very bloodthirsty and doing wicked things. So these four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. So the first one's going to be Nebuchadnezzar. So in, the sim- in a similar way, the head of the statue was gold. And remember, that was because Nebuchadnezzar was the preeminent king of the kingdom of evil. He was the first king of the kingdom of evil, which was Babylon. There will come a second king of the kingdom of evil, which is going to be the Antichrist. In the vision, is going to be portrayed as the little horn. But those are the two kings of the kingdom of evil. And so because Nebuchadnezzar was first, he was golden. He was the most valuable, but he was also the softest, meaning his kingdom lasted the shortest amount of time. His kingdom was the weakest by comparison to the other three. But it was made of gold, so because he was the preeminent one. In a similar way, his animals are a lion and an eagle, two of the most majestic animals. The eagle, the most majestic and the dominant of the sky, and the, the lion, the most majestic of, of the land. You could think of them that way. But they're put together as an eagle, uh, sorry, as a lion with eagle's wings. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom of Babylon, this is interesting. The kingdom of Babylon often referred to itself with both the lion and the eagle, much like nations today will have sort of an animal that they go by. We go by the eagle, you know, and Russia goes by a bear and that sort of thing. Well, Babylon had as their animals also lions and bears and the prophets, specifically the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Ezekiel, referred to Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar both with both of those animals, lion and bear. For example, Jeremiah 4 and verse 7, a lion has gone up from his thicket, a destroyer of nations. He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Ezekiel 17 and verse 3, thus says the Lord, a great eagle with great wings and long pinions. There he's talking about Nebuchadnezzar again. Okay, So there's these images of lions and eagles, but Nebuchadnezzar is both of them put together. So he is the like the golden head. He's the preeminent one. He's, in a way of speaking, the most valuable one. He's not the strongest, The bear is going to be stronger than him, and the final beast is going to be far stronger than him. But he is the most majestic and the most uh, attractive, if you will, of the beasts. But uh, also, by the way, it's interesting that God himself also will refer to him himself with the same three animals as the vision, the leopard, the eagle, and the lion. In Hosea chapter 13, God, talking of, of himself, says, So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard, I lurk beside the way, I'll fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cub. So it's interesting that God parallels the, the animals in the vision, talking about of himself, when ultimately God is the one that's behind all this to begin with. Okay? So here's this lion with these eagle's wings, this majestic type of creature. Then I, as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a, a man and the mind of a man was given to it. 
So there we see that's, well, that's the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember? Nebuchadnezzar, who God humbled him, he gave him the mind of a beast and he crawled on all fours for a period of seven seasons. Remember all that? But then at the end, God raised him up. So here we see that the, the wings are plucked from him and then he was raised up and given the mind of a man. Okay, so Daniel here is being told something that has already happened. He's being told of the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar, which was also part of the Nebuchadnezzar's vision as well. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.